Hello and welcome to the DMA Politics Podcast. Uh, my name is Michael Stark. I'm the Public Affairs Manager here at the DMA and I'm sitting here with Zach Thornton who is our, well, he's our outgoing External Affairs mm-hmm. Manager, uh, sadly, and John, our permanent uh, <laughs> uh, Director of Policy com- and Compliance who's Thank not you. going anywhere. <laughs> he's got a life sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So today we are uh, gathered in the, as ever, the ground floor of the DMA offices to discuss what's happened in politics and beyond in the last few weeks. It's been quite a while since we've spoken to you, so there's plenty to chat about and, well, the main thing, Zach, what's happened on, on Friday? <coughs> well, oh my God, since, since we last spoke, so much has happened in, uh, in, in politics. The biggest one for me uh, recently that's dominated news headlines is the, the European elections, but also Theresa May's resigned and on the 7th of June uh, there'll be a, a, a leadership contest beginning. Uh, that, that's already started. Boris Johnson apparently is the front runner for the Tory leadership. Um, but then, of course, in the European elections, the Conservatives suffered a massive, massive defeat. I think they finished behind the Green Party mm. in the end. So uh, absolutely hemorrhage support from the last election. And well, we had 20, 2017. They thought they were going to get a majority, went into that and lost the majority and had to go into coalition with the DUP and this election is, or rather in the local council elections that came along afterwards, they also had a very poor performance there and this is just the third one in a row which has been absolutely abysmal, one of the last, uh, I think it's the worst since 1865 or something Wow! <laughs> so it's a pretty poor performance yeah. all around so by the, by the, the government. The last time was about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly and also Labour, the main opposition party who normally do very well in times where the government is, has, has been in for a bit of time and is floundering. They have had an equally bad time. In Scotland, they came fifth, and the rest of the country, they came third or fourth roundabout as well. Zach and I were looking at the graph this morning and mm. you could see the, uh, the, the kind of change in, in the votes that had happened in the EU election, and the only two that had negative uh, you, you know, negative um, voting. You know, the percentage gone down. Yeah. Uh, was the Conservatives and, and Labour? Mm. It's like the death of traditional politics. Yeah. Well, the, the the election was basically, I think, a referendum on the handling of the Brexit process so far. So, the electorate pretty dismayed with the performance of the Conservative Party, but also Labour, um, <clears throat> representing perfectly what's going on between them. That they're basically split down the middle between two different constituencies of Remainers and, and Leavers, and people choosing rather than to vote for their normal party of choice voting for a party that's either pro-Brexit, the Brexit party, or for a, a various Remainer party in the, Gre- <coughs> the Greens or the Liberal Democrats. Absolutely, yeah. It's quite interesting that the, the Liberal Democrats, who everyone thought was dead after 2010 and 2015, or rather they did well in 2010, but when they were completely all, all but wiped out in 2015, everyone thought that was the end of the Liberal Democrats, but they managed to position themselves as the, the Remain party, at least in, in England, uh, and to call the votes, basically. Yeah, and, and, and you had that new party, Change UK, with mm. the uh, the series, Anna Subri from the Conservative Party and a few others, Heidi Allen, and then uh, there was Chakra Imana and a few others from uh, Labour who left and formed this new party, supposed to be the pro-Remainer party, mm. which did absolutely abysmally at the election. So you'd have, you'd have, I would have thought, well, I was thinking perhaps they would get more votes, but all of those Remainer votes went to the Liberals, to the Liberals in, in the main, or, and if not the Liberals, they went to the Green Party. So yeah. Change UK should probably fold up and join the Liberal Democrats rather, yeah. than, uh, <laughs> yeah, rather than going it alone. Point. Absolutely, yeah. So the landscape is somewhat, I mean, in the EU elections, it, it always has changed rather than, is different to what it is in general elections and, and local elections, but it is something that is quite quite remarkable. I mean, UKIP were the, the victorious party last time as well, but I mean, the Brexit party is essentially 
UK rebranded. It's Nigel Farage's PR machine, and that's what he's <laughs> using to promote his message this time. But he's done very well, and, and he and everyone else can kind of well has to take it on the head. Yeah, it was interesting. The Brexit party were only three percentage points higher than what UKIP polled at the last really? European really? election. So it wasn't a huge su- surge in support. Really, it was fairly mm. similar to what it was last time. Obviously, it's still convincingly won the election, mm. but it's basically taken. UKIP supporters and gone over there, yeah. plus a few disaffected Labour and Conservative. I'd, I'd like to think that they're voting for the policy rather than the person, though, because <laughs> even I can sort of sympathise to a certain extent with um, with people that want to leave, mm. right? And obviously the Brexit party is all about leaving, but um, yeah. I, I don't think I could ever get behind Nigel Farage uh, as a person. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think <laughs> there's, I was going to say he's a, a Marmite figure, but it's, it's m- is, more yeah. hated than loved, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that was that's one of the main developments. And then, of course, it was it was the day after everyone went to the polls and cast a vote that Theresa May at least set her, her timetable for her resignations. And she's been hounded for months, probably probably near enough a year now, to, by her party to try and get rid of her. And she's finally realised that, no, she's not going to get her deal through Parliament. She threatened to bring it back in early June, but that mm-hmm. was just... The reaction against that was so severe that she finally realised that <laughs> her time is up. There's only so many times you can bring back the same exactly, thing. Exactly. I have some sympathy for Theresa May, but uh, ultimately it's kind of really a mess of, of her own making, because if she hadn't call, called that ill-fated general election, mm-hmm. she would have had a parliamentary majority and she would have been able to push through mm-hmm. her deal, but because she called the election subsequently lost the majority yeah. and relies well, on the DUP. Even, even if she'd sort of uh, hang, hang back on... Um, Kicking off Article 50, mm. uh, when they actually got some plans in first, yeah. uh, it, that might have been a better approach. Yeah. But yeah, I think you know, it, I would have quite liked her to see. I would have quite liked to see her stand at the, you know, in, in front of the cameras and sort of like, oh, go on then, somebody else do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that was that came after the talks between the Labour and Conservative parties broke down as well. So there's there's also the argument that she should have gone to that before she tried and rammed through her deal several times because allegedly they made quite a lot of headway with the, the party talks and you know if that had happened first then maybe they could have reached a deal and got it through mm. together but her, her, her plan A was to play a game of chicken as I, yeah. saw, I saw it described on the BBC which yeah. is about right she mm. went for the uh, cooperation yeah. <laughs> last <Yeah. laughs> rather than first exactly yeah zero sum game so that's that so she is set to well she will officially hand her resignation to the Queen on the 7th of June but will hang around as Prime Minister until the next leader of the Conservative Party is selected and that race has kicked off in the last few days mm-hmm. very quickly with now 10 candidates in the race already the one thing you always have to remember with the Tory leadership uh, battle is that it isn't actually the supporters, the members, uh, that choose the new leader. They, they do at the end, but it's not quite like Labour where you get a free vote on many different candidates. The parliamentary party, the MPs themselves, they narrow it down to two possible candidates and then they have a, a leadership contest. So whoever it is that gets to the final ballot has to be popular with MPs themselves. They can't get there if they're not popular with Conservative MPs, regardless of what the grassroots rank and file may actually feel about them. Yeah, and this may be the hurdle for Boris Johnson. Everyone is touting him as the leading candidate, but he's just not very popular among his Conservative Party friends, be- mm-hmm. having screwed the majority over at, at some point during his career. So I also yeah. he- also hear that he hasn't done so well either with uh, new uh, new MPs. That he still has a relatively right. good reputation with uh, older Conservative MPs. Okay, but those from 2020 and 2015, 2017. Um, 
haven't got quite the same sort of trust or faith in him yeah. that other others do. I wonder why that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I just, he's just the only, he's the only popular one with the people, isn't he? Uh, and I, I just feel that all the conservative members, all the you know, ordinary people, ordinary people, yeah. <laughs> ordinary conservatives, yeah. <laughs> um, they're going to want him, aren't they? So for the rest of the party to go against that. And he did, at the end of the day, he won um, two mayoral elections in London, yeah. which is basically, really, a, a Labour city. Um, yeah. And he won it yeah. as, as, by being himself, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So the, the other contenders so far, who have we got? We've got Steve Baker, uh, one of the chairman of the ERG, the, the hard Brexit uh, mm. lobbying group within the Conservative Party, Sir Graham Brady, Michael Gove, the current Environment Secretary, and also Boris Johnson's... Uh, uh, leave campaign. I think Michael goes is an interesting one because mm. he's he can bring together the two different factions of the Conservative Party because he's, he's a Brexiteer but he's not a very strong ardent Brexiteer so he can bring some Remainers with him mm. perhaps he has he has sway with both camps which yeah. could be interesting. But everyone seems to have very short memories about the fact he well screwed over Boris Johnson in the, in the last <laughs> leadership challenge and also was head of the Leave campaign that you know arguably used interesting means to get their messages across to to the wider public. Uh, so, yes, that Michael goes in the race. Matt Hancock, the current uh, health secretary, who was former, formerly the digital or culture media and sports secretary, he's yeah. the moderniser, the kind of David Cameron of the new lot, but not particularly popular, a bit too young, perhaps. Mm. It would be great for our industry if we're getting <laughs> yeah. Matt Hancock in. I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in the list. It was, uh, mm. it was Johnson and Rob the last time I looked at the, the bookies numbers. Yeah. Um, but actually, he'd be quite a good choice, wouldn't he? I think he's, yeah. he's not a... He hasn't... He hasn't screwed anybody over that I know of. He's yeah. a reasonable bloke, yeah. from what we hear. Quite potentially, but is it the time for reasonable politics? To well, yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's, yeah, at least eight, nine others who are also contending. So we could go through them all, but that would be well, the, I think a the other, boring. Afternoon. The other ones mentioned maybe Dominic Raab. Yeah, he, he was he was doing quite well in the bookies odds to be uh, to be leader. Right. Um, that's about it, really. I think the rest are kind of mm. outside chances. Yeah. So people have said Dominic Raab is like Boris Johnson, but without the bad press. <laughs> Without a bad haircut. Yeah. <laughs> well, without much hair. They did find some bad press the other day where he compared feminists to lesbians or something like that. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> so, some, some tweet from 2010 or something like yeah. that. Oh, well. oh, well. Now all these things. It's a different world, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. So, as ever, turmoil is the, is the kind of yes. watchword of politics at the moment. Embrace the chaos. Yeah. Has there anything else been happening? What's, what else has been? There has been several things. Um, death and withdrawal agreement, yeah, it's just up to, it's really, the Brexit process is now up to whoever takes over as PM. Yeah, <clears throat> well, so the Brexit process is, Brexit's still delayed until October, mm -hmm. um, that's still the case. We have to wait for the leadership contest, and there'll be a new Tory leader selected, and it'll be their, be their job to go out and try and negotiate a new, a new deal, mm -hmm. I, I suppose. So does this mean that all the Brexit options are back on the table? Um, well, the, the, the word from Europe was that we've got our deal. Mm. They're not going to change just mm. because we've decided to put another yeah. prime minister or you know another leader of the Tory party in charge. This is it. I, I don't see how it actually resolves the, the, the impasse in Parliament. The amount of MPs that refuse to vote for Theresa May's deal are not going to budge just because there's a new leader. Mm. And if I was, or if they do some wordsmithing on it. If I was negotiating from the European side, where's my 
motivation to change anything. Mm. You know, yeah. you negotiate a deal, you've got it. Yeah. What you've got now is your own problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose it depends how successfully they'll be able to tie the deal to Theresa May as she slowly sinks towards the, the bottom of the ocean. But, yeah, as we say, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily look like a, an easy, easy thing to change the withdrawal agreement. What about no deal? Is that back on? Well, a lot of the, a lot of the people that got votes, you know, you know they're, they're essentially no deal promoters, aren't they? Brexit party Farage, he doesn't, mm-hmm. he's not particularly interested. <coughs> um, Boris Johnson in the past, well, he's softened on that, hasn't he? But he has in the past sort of suggested a no deal mm-hmm. would be okay. So, you know, I mean, I, I just don't think it's going to go away. No. I think pressure for it will mount. Yeah. But uh, MPs, a majority of them are against no deal. So, unless there was a general election in the makeup of parliament changed, or lots of MPs suddenly had a change of heart. Um, it's not going to pass Parliament. No matter how much pressure there is, there's enough. I don't think there's enough MPs that will get behind. The, get behind No Deal. That's true. That's true. However, the only thing that could push us towards that is the if there is no majority in Parliament for anything, hmm. then as it stands today, No Deal is the, is the default only option. Default option. And, and, and that's certainly, that, you know, going on past performances, that's mm. certainly the direction we're going, isn't yeah. it? You know, nobody can decide mm. who's going to give an inch either way, yeah. and eventually you just, it's going to come to... And all it would take was someone like Dominic Raab to say, right, if we don't get an agreement by then, then we're going to no deal, yeah. step up the no deal planning again, and then that'll yeah, be the, yeah, the step off the Brexit mm. edge. That's true. It is the legal default. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, as ever, we've got our Brexit toolkit on the DMA website. If things are worrying you, or you think you need to prepare more, do have a look at them, get in touch with us if you have any questions about that, but we will be, of course, covering this as we go forward uh, into the Brexit and beyond, uh, which seems to be never-ending. So one of the things that we do here in our team in particular is respond to government consultations or consultations that come from regulators or elsewhere. And these allow, these allow us to feed into government policy and contribute to the general legislative discussion about the issues of the day. And one of the ones that we are looking at at the moment is the Online Harms White Paper, which is introduced by the Department for Digital Culture and Media and Sports. And the aim of this is to make the UK the safest place to go online in the world and it's quite obviously quite an ambitious target but it seeks to address a whole range of things some of them normally outside our scope but it's such a large topic and it ties in very nicely to the trust issues that we have in our industry at the moment and it allows us to leave our bit of feedback as to how we think companies and particularly in the data and marketing industry should act and be responsible online. So the consultation covers a number of different issues. Uh, It's very wide in its scope. It covers social media companies and any kind of online platform that allows individuals to post content or interact with each other online. So one of the discussions is is about whether a duty of care clause should be brought in, which would be used as the legal hook to hold companies uh, accountable for the... Uh, content that is generated online, whether that's generated by a user or themselves. There's also discussions about independent regulators, penalty codes and general conversations about the wider ethics about the whole industry in itself. So we'll chat through a bit a few of the issues, uh, 
let's kick off with the, the duty of care. What, what, what does that mean in reality, John? What, was, what would that allow well, the I regulator to do? Like a lot of the things in this, in this white paper, I think it's a very broad brush kind of approach. Duty of care can mean so much. Mm. But I think that for, um, particularly for uh, social media companies, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make them responsible for a lot of things that they currently clearly don't want to be responsible for. Um, they don't really see themselves as publishers, even though you know some might argue that they are. Uh, and <coughs> it's going to make them responsible for all of the content that's shown. Uh, and at the moment, social media is you know, um, unofficially used for a lot of different things. Um, you know, terrorist groups share information on there, um, gang members sort of share information uh, and post uh, images and music and all kinds of things promoting their, um, whatever you want to call it, cause, mm. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, it really is going to change the shape of, uh, of social media mm. because at the moment they, you know, they, they rely on people... Um, reporting content, yeah. although some of them, you know, do have a, a small amount of people reviewing what's going on, but of mm -hmm. course that's a very arbitrary process. Um, and this will mean that they have to have some kind of way of um, vetting everything that, that yeah. goes up online, which you know, with about whatever it is, five hundred hours a minute or something on, really? on YouTube, yeah. it's something huge like mm. that. Um, I think that's going to change the whole way they operate. Yeah, I think the the paper. Is a step in the in the right direction. There haven't been enough rules governing for how we use the internet, especially in regard to harms for vulnerable people and children in particular, being able to access things that they shouldn't be able to mm. be able to normally. And that social media spaces have become almost like public spaces. Well, this is what it says in the report, and I mm. tend to tend to agree with this. That we have certain rules that govern govern where we go outside and public forums where people would meet and discuss things and. Uh, be around each other in public mm. and that social media is n almost like a public space now so there needs to be similar rules that govern how people interact with each other on those sites the information they share mm -hmm. the links they share so maybe it's not going to be quite the same as being in, in a public space but to be able to have confidence in social media companies and for children to be able to use them there needs to be some level of um, ethics or a framework for, for, for how yeah. children access those, those sites and are, and are protected yeah and that's clearly a an admirable thing in principle, but one of the one of the concerns that we know has been raised in in the wider industry is the is the definition because at the moment it it, it refers to offence. It's not necessarily something that would be illegal in in hate speech or whatever would be agreed as illegal in as you say the public forum. It just points to a wider def definition about offence. And while it does give indicators about you know the things that we don't really deal with, such as terrorism, etc., mm -hmm. it does leave the door open, potentially, for at least people to raise concerns when that and that, and that would take up time for businesses to have to contest or whatever, even if, mm. even if, there's, uh, if, they're, if they're in no way in breach of the, of the law. And advertisements often cause offence. That's kind of what mm. it, and, 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 and a piece of advertising is good when it's pushing boundaries and making people react and feel a, and feel a particular way if it's bland and boring. Yeah. You, want, you want it to be sort of push, push the envelope a bit. Yeah. So if uh, it was defined quite loosely, that offence, then it could be quite bad mm. for the advertising industry. Absolutely. It needs to be, there needs to be a really clear, really clear aim of what the regulator is trying to prevent rather than just trying to address offence. Definitely, definitely. And they're talking at the moment, they're talking about fines and not inconsiderable fines. So if that, if those are going to be the, the penalties, then it definitely needs to be considered very carefully. So that's something that we would want to emphasise. And if you have any thoughts on that, then that's very, very welcome. Please do get in touch. Um,
The other aspects of it refer to, um, we have here, there's a wider discussion about how you educate the public, for example, because people generally at the moment aren't um, clued up on their rights online or how they should act online and whether companies should be compelled to create frameworks for people to read about what their obligations and, and uh, boundaries are online when they're posting. And so that's something that is quite interesting to us as someone who wants to engage with the public and tell people about their individual rights. That's something that we want to talk about as well. Mm. I think another principle running through the paper, is one that this is where it gets very relevant to our industry, is around accountability. It's about companies that are publishing online or hosting a social media site to be, uh, to be accountable and transparent with their users. So uh, an example it gives in the paper is to make sure terms and conditions are really clear and explicit. People know what they're getting in return for using a site, how that site might use their data, for example, or what they're giving it in exchange, um, whether that data will be shared with advertisers or third parties, mm -hmm. perhaps, um, and making sure people understand what the value exchange is. So that goes back to GDPR, and that's things that are quite yeah. useful in industry. Yeah. But I, I do think this, you can see the net closing, can't you, on the way that the internet is currently running. Mm -hmm. Okay, the current funding, the current usage of internet, um, social media, and advertising generally. Um, doesn't really fit the mould of, of GDPR um, and, and papers like this. I mean, if you want to protect people, if you want to stop, and like you said, it's a very admirable thing to try and prevent people from being harmed by, <laughs> here goes the coffee machine, um, <coughs> by, you know, things that they see online, but that's going to have a huge impact on these, on these organisations. They're going to have to change the way that they publish stuff. And with the other things that are going on at the moment in the digital marketing space, they may have to change the way they fund themselves as well. Mm. So I think there's a, there's, there's a radical change coming for uh, the way that the internet is run and the way that um, advertising is, is, is funding it. Yeah, definitely. And the, the other question is about how, how this is enforced and who this is enforced by, because the UK has, obviously there's primary and secondary legislation that comes from the government, from Westminster, but there's a, there's a network of regulators which cover advertising and media and all sorts, and can you tell us a bit about that, John, and yeah. how, how, how well, that unfolds? I mean, I mean, you know that there's a, there's a whole range of regulators that we deal with on a regular basis. I mean, when it, when it comes to um, the content of advertising, you know, there's the ASA and, uh, and a whole range of um, other organisations that feed into the ASA. Um, then, you know, when it comes to financial stuff, we've got the FCA, we've got Ofcom for telecommunications, we've got the MRS for anything that covers sort of like market research. Uh, DCMS sits above everybody, which is the, the government department that sort of um, regulates our space. Uh, obviously, even smaller organisations like the DMA, um, mm. you know, are a, are a form of regulator as well. You know, yeah. we regulate our members um, through the D, through uh, the DMC, uh, and uh, the biggest regulator in our space, of course, is the ICO that looks after everything to do with data um, and uh, GDPR. So there's a whole raft of ones out there at the moment. I'm wondering whether a new one specifically for this kind of thing mm. would be that effective. I mean, to come up to speed, you know, get a whole team together mm -hmm. and come up to speed on this is going to take a significant amount of time and I'm not sure that that's the right thing, you know, okay. to wait another three years to get a group up to speed. It might be better to incorporate or make the ICO bigger, make it part of the ICO, build on the knowledge that they've already gained uh, in their online investigations, their online data and um, 
uh, you know, the investigations they've done into uh, advertising, digital advertising, mm. that kind of thing. Absolutely. I think there's there's interesting parallels between the consultation and, well, as you say, we uh, you know, in some ways we are a regulator, but this paper, at least initially, is principle-based, and as we say, it's, it's broad in its scope, and that is in part because of the fact that it is principle-based, principle -based, and that's how we work to an extent as well, or to, an, to a large extent. So the principle approach does work very well, or at least we find, but we also have quite a specific scope of how we regulate and who we regulate. So if you have a sort of principle-based approach from the kind of more holistic uh, oversight or you know, if you take a few steps back then it might be quite difficult to have a principle-based approach that doesn't begin to uh, unfairly close down you know, some people's legitimate yeah, use of the internet. Yeah, where, exactly, you know, what's been you know, absolutely. You know, some well-established business process, it mm -hmm. might fall, fall foul of this quite quickly. Yeah. Mm. Uh, through unintended consequences. Absolutely. Mm. Whoever the regulator ends up being, or whether it's taken over by the ICO <coughs> or another group, this touches on the, already the actions of lots of different um, institutions, um, regulators, law enforcement. Whoever it is, we have to work with a lot of different groups because it's talking about yeah. things that are breaking the law. So you're talking about terrorism, you're going to be working with the police and the intelligence agencies mm. and others. If you're talking about you know, the effect of suicide or self-harm on young people, then you'll be working with charities. Yeah, maybe like the Samaritans and others. So it's going to impact on loads of different groups. This, so you have to work with lots of different institutions. Perhaps it's not about one regulator. It's about making sure that the thinking between lots of different people is all is joined up and they're working together for a, a common solution. Mm. All right, great. Well, as we say, we're going to be writing a response to this to the government, and we. Always with consultations, we very much welcome member feedback. Sometimes you'll think of things that we are, that are particularly relevant to you and your, and your business that we might not think of being more holistically uh, approached. So do just get in touch with any concerns or comments that you might have, and we'll be very happy to include them uh, anonymous, anonymous, anonymously or otherwise. Um, that's pretty much it, though. Zach, do you want to mention we've got the debating group uh, annual reception coming up next month? Yeah, sure. Um, the DMA's members have something called the debating group. The debating group is a really interesting organisation that brings together most of the uh, marketing and media trade bodies like the DMA, the Advertising Association, uh, the Market Research Society and others. And uh, throughout the year we get a chance to sponsor uh, debates that happen. And uh, in, uh, on the 15th of July we'll be sponsoring our, our own debate and that debate will focus on the subject of data ethics and there'll be more news on that coming out soon. But before that, on the 24th of June, we are sponsoring the Debating Group's annual reception. Uh, this is a chance for uh, senior policymakers, MPs and others involved in marketing and advertising to get together, have a bit of a chit-chat in Parliament, and there'll be a uh, presentation from our, our, our President, who is uh, the Dame Cheryl Gillan MP. She's a fairly influential, I think she's the Vice President of the 1922 Committee within the Conservative Party. So she's been very, very, very involved in the uh, Brexit uh, debacle up to this point so she should offer some interesting stories she's quite a good speaker and quite mm. funny but some good insights into into parliament at the moment and what we can uh, do to prepare for the future and in fact by that time if sir graham brady does run for tory leadership she may may well be the chairman of the 1922 committee oh well so there you go you'll get right from the horse's mouth so to speak <laughs> tickets are 70 pounds and we'll put a link at the bottom of the article on the website so you can go direct and get your ticket Excellent. Thanks very much. That's us for today. Thank you. Thank you.